أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا رسول الله صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا غريب يا مظلوم كربلاء يا ليتنا كنا معكم سادتي فنفوز فوزا عظيما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ويطعمون الطعام على حبه مسكينا ويتيما وأسيرا ويطعمون الطعام على حبه مسكينا ويتيما وأسيرا إنما نطعمكم لوجه الله إنما نطعمكم لوجه الله لا نريد منكم جزاء ولا شكورا God states in the Holy Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and they give food out of the love for God to the indigent, the orphan, and the captive. And they say, we feed you only for the face of God. We do not desire any recompense or thanks from you, Amanna Billah, Sadaqallahu Al-Aliyyul Azim. Let us enliven our hearts and minds and our gathering with the praise and salutations upon the Holy Prophet and his purified progeny. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad. Allahumma salam. COVID-19 has clearly put on display some of the most excessive forms of greed and self-interest in the world. You'll know and recall that during this time, when it came to self-interest and wealth inequity in the world, we found that some of the worst instances of self-interest and wealth inequity occurred in the past two years during this time of COVID. Some companies and corporations, they made huge profits, mind-boggling profits, 
during this time, while many individuals and communities around the world, they struggled even with their basic necessities. Stark contrast between those who profited off of this pandemic and during this pandemic and those who were barely making ends meet. Many corporations and companies around the world. Even on an individual level, we find that a lot of people engaged in selfish behavior when they deliberately decided that they did not want to observe safety precautions or restrictions. Why? Because why should I be limited? Why should I wear a mask? Why should I avoid being in large crowds? I'm free. I can do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. And so we find that there was a lot of selfish behavior and selfish selfishness and self-interest that was on display. But greed and selfishness is not something new. It's not something that just appeared in the last two years. If we look at the state of the world for generations, look at the state of world poverty. Today, over half of the world two-thirds of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. Two-thirds of the world's population. And 10% of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. When it comes to malnutrition and hunger, estimates tell us that every year, every single year, an average of over 3 million children die because of malnutrition. 3 million children a year. The population of the city of Toronto is 3 million. The city of Toronto itself, the population is 3 million. So imagine that that number, 3 million, that's a very large number of children every single year they die because they don't have enough to eat because of malnutrition. That's an average, if we want to break it down on a daily average, that's an average of 8,500 children every single day die because they don't have enough food. But on the other hand, you have individuals, individuals not families, not groups, not corporations, individuals who have acquired so much money and so much wealth that they could not spend even if they lived a thousand lifetimes. When it comes to consumption, if you look at the United States, your friendly southern neighbor, the United States, the population of the United States is 5% of the world's population, the global population. But the United States uses 25% of the world's resources. 5% of the population of the world uses 25% of the world's resources. The other 75% of the world's resources are shared by 95% of the world's population. 
when it comes to wasting food. It's not just about using resources. Again, if we take the example of the United States, I don't know how the situation here is in Canada, but in the United States, every single year, 80 billion pounds of food is wasted. 80 billion pounds of food. You go to the store, two people, they go to Costco, they buy enough food for 10 people. And it's not consumed. This 80 billion pounds of food is that which is wasted, not that which is consumed, not that which is used. There's nothing wrong with it. You go to the grocery store, you buy the food, and it stays on your shelf or in your fridge or in your kitchen, and then it rots and it's thrown away. Or sometimes even it does not rot, it's completely fine, but it's thrown away. 80 billion pounds of food. Whereas on the other hand, you have people, like I said, who don't have enough to feed their stomachs, people who are dying out of malnutrition and hunger. Why? Where does this wealth inequity come from? Where does this selfish behavior come from? It stems in large part from this me first or me only or very individualistic outlook that many people have. That it's all about me. That as long as I'm fine, whatever happens to the rest of the world, I don't care about. As long as I'm okay, it doesn't matter what's happening around me. It's a very individualistic, very selfish kind of worldview and outlook and a way of living in the world. Human beings have the potential and the capacity and in fact have exhibited much destructive and selfish behavior. It's very easy for us to be selfish. The Quran says, God describes the human being. He says a human being is always so anxious. So anxious. It's always looking to feel better, always looking for comfort, always anxious in the pursuit of goodness and comfort. And then God says, When he experiences difficulty, he does what? He expresses a sense of irritation. He becomes uncomfortable. And when he is blessed with blessings, with provision, what does he do? He becomes ungrateful. And he ends up being reluctant to help others. We fidget. We pray to God. God, please give me money. Give me wealth. And if you give me this wealth, I'll help the poor. I'll assist others. I'll reach out to others. God gives us. Suddenly what happens? We become stingy. We become overprotective. We begin to count our balance in the account, in the bank, dollar by dollar, cent by cent. We become reluctant to assist others. And what's worse is when this selfish behavior is given a religious excuse, a religious justification. 
Sometimes we find ourselves exhibiting selfish behavior and we give it a religious twist as well, a religious justification. How? The Quran tells us in Surah Yasin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ أَنْفِقُوا مِمَّا رَزَقَكُمُ اللَّهِ قَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَنُطْعِمُ مَنْ لَوْ يَشَاءُ اللَّهُ أَطْعَمَهُ When they are commanded to share their blessings, to give from that which God has given them, the disbelievers, they tell the believers, what do they say? أَنُطْعِمُ مَنْ لَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ أَطْعَمَهُ أَنُطْعِمُ مَنْ لَوْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ أَطْعَمَهُ should we feed and help the ones who, if God wanted to help them, God would have helped them. Why do we have to help? If their situation is so bad, God should take care of them. Why do I have to take care of others? Why do I have to share my resources with others? Sometimes we find ourselves acting in that situation, right? Someone comes to me and says, I need help, assist me. And I say, God will help you. God will help you. Move along. It's worse when it's given a religious justification. So we find, unfortunately, that there are many times where selfishness is displayed. As human beings, we can be very selfish. We think only of our self-interests, our individual interests. We become greedy and stingy. But on the other hand, we also find there are those who have been endowed with an enormous capacity to show care and kindness and compassion and empathy to others. Some who are very kind, they have kind spirits and kind souls. They reach out to others, they help others, they empathize with others, especially those who are struggling. And we find this especially with children, subhanAllah. You know, God has created us with an immaculate origin, a pure origin. And we find this with children. Children, when they're young, they don't deceive others. They're truthful. Sometimes you'll find that parents, they try to get their kids to hide something, not to tell others about what's going on in the home or what's happening. But the child, by his or her disposition, is truthful. They'll say everything that's on their mind. They don't have the capacity to deceive or to hide something. This is the purity of their heart. We find children that many times they display generosity. We might go out with our child and you see someone who's begging on the street and you ignore them. You don't want to help them. But your child tugs on you and says, Baba, this person is hungry. This person is in need. Are you going to help them? Because they have this spirit of kindness and compassion and empathy. You'll see a newborn child. Right? If you take a newborn child, now I'm not saying do this at home, but you've probably seen videos you've see, or, or in person you've seen this. Right? If you take a child and suddenly in front of this infant you begin to cry and weep, what does the child do? It also begins to cry and weep. It doesn't know what's going on, but it empathizes 
when it sees someone is in pain, crying, it also starts to cry. So we see this empathy, especially with children. I remember reading a story once about a teacher. This teacher, she works in a school in a resource room, and her job is to help children with special needs, with educational needs, those who need extra help. They go to her, and in her classroom, she helps them, she guides them, she provides extra support for them. She relates the story, this teacher. She says that in my class, I had a student about 10 years old. And this student, he was attending my class for some time. And so I instructed this child. I helped him. I assisted him. But soon I noticed that this child was doing very well. He was passing all of his tests. He was following instructions very well. He was doing all of his assignments. He was doing great. So I began to think to myself, what's wrong with this child? Usually the children that I instruct, they come to me, they're children with special needs, with educational needs. But this, does, this child does not seem like they have any needs per se. They're doing very well. So the teacher says, I wanted to figure out what was going on. So I kept monitoring the child till I was assured that there was nothing wrong with this child. So she says, I got frustrated. So I took the child to the side and I said, hey, listen, you're doing very well. I don't think you need any extra support. So why are you wasting your time in this class? You're wasting your time. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your parents' hard-earned money. You don't need to be in this class. Why are you here? The student told her, I'll tell you, but you have to promise me that you don't tell anyone. She said, of course, tell me. The child said, I have a friend in my class. And several weeks ago, the teacher in the class realized that my friend needed special attention, had special educational needs. He wasn't doing very well. So the teacher determined that this child needs extra support. So she encouraged him. She told him that you need to go to so-and-so's class in order for her to support you. So he says that when my friend heard this, he became very sad. He became very embarrassed for being singled out. Out of the whole class, he was singled out to go and seek support, educational support. So he was very embarrassed, very reluctant. And I saw my friend kind of anxious, stressing over this. So I told him, hey, listen, buddy, don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with special classes and you know, support. In fact, I take those classes myself. And he says, from that day, I decided that I would attend these classes so that I can support my friends, so that he would not feel singled out. Some people have a capacity for empathy. They see others hurt. They see others in need, and they empathize with them. They feel for them. They express care and concern for the plight of others. 
They don't live their lives just based on their self-interest. Today we find that many people also are altruistic. They're very generous in their spirits. Take the case of medical professionals today. Again, if we come back to the case of pandemics and diseases and illnesses. Medical professionals who put their lives on the line in, in order to care for others. And we saw over the course of the last two years, we saw the difficulty that many medical professionals, doctors, physicians, nurses, staff, other people who worked in this environment, that they put their lives on the line because they care about others, because they want to help others. But they put their lives on the line, and some of them lost their lives. They lost their lives due to disease. There are some who are bestowed with this capacity to care for others. Our teachings, they emphasize the importance of generating within ourselves a sense of generosity, a sense of care, a sense of compassion, a sense of altruism, putting others before ourselves. We, encouraged, we are encouraged by the Qur'an and the prophetic teachings to turn to others. Our teachings, they focus on this idea of assisting others, fulfilling the needs of others. Go to the books of hadith and look at the long list of various hadiths by the Prophet and the Imams and the Ahlul Bayt that encourage us in order to do whatever it is that we can to fulfill the needs of others. Someone has a need that you fulfill their need. You assist, you facilitate the fulfillment of that particular need of others. Al-Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam in one hadith he says, من قضى لأخيه المؤمن حاجة Listen to this hadith. He says the one who facilitates the fulfillment of his brother or his sister's need. Brother or sister here is not just relatives. Anyone who's in need. Someone has a particular need and you are able to help to assist them to facilitate the fulfillment of that need, and you do so, what happens? What are the results of this? The Imam says, The results of this is that God will fulfill the need, your needs. How many of them? 100,000 of your needs. The hadith says, one of them is entrance to paradise. Someone is in need and you're able to fulfill that need, and you do so sincerely, God says, I'll fulfill for you 100,000 needs. And one of them is entrance into paradise. The traditions, they tell us that assisting others is more important, is more rewarding than even worship. The reward of assisting others is greater than even worshiping God, praying and fasting. The imam, one day he was performing the tawaf, he was circling the Kaaba. For many of us, this is one of the greatest acts of worship, right? You've gone to perform the pilgrimage and you are circling the Kaaba. You are performing the tawaf. And in the middle of his tawaf, someone comes to him and he tells him, Ya ibn Rasulullah, I'm in need. I have a need. And I'd seek your assistance. 
the Imam stopped, he halted his tawaf in the middle. He did not complete his tawaf. He halted it and he left. He left and he helped that person. When he came back, some of his companions, they told him, Ya ibn Rasulullah, what just happened? We were performing the tawaf with you. We hadn't finished seven rounds and you just stopped and you left. Couldn't you have finished the rounds and then gone? The Imam said, that granting the needs of someone who is in need is more important than performing this tawaf. God wants me to facilitate the needs of others, to be kind, to be generous. This is what gives flavor to my tawaf and to my prayers and to my fasting. If I don't display compassion and kindness to others, then there's no value in my acts of worship. There's no value. We are encouraged to help others and not just when we are asked. Don't wait for someone to come and ask you for assistance. Seek out opportunities. I mentioned a few nights ago, sometimes some people, they have a sense of honor and dignity. And so even if they are in need, they might not ask for help because they don't want to feel ashamed. So they might not go around asking for help. But it's our, it's our responsibility to look for opportunities to help others. Connect with people around you. Be mindful of people's needs. Ask people how they are. Ask them if there's anything that you can assist them with, anything that you can help them with. Look for those opportunities. There's great blessings and rewards and fulfillment, even personal fulfillment in helping others. This is what we learn from the Ahlul Bayt. The Ahlul Bayt were selfless. The Ahlul Bayt were altruistic. The Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, he, sometimes the reports, they tell us that sometimes he would go for three days without eating food. Three days. Why? Because he didn't have money? No, the Prophet had money but he would give his money to others. There were others who were in need. He would take this money and he would give it to others. And he himself will stay hungry. The hadith says that sometimes the prophet would take a rock, a stone, and he would tie it tightly around his stomach in order to suppress the pain of his hunger. Because when his, the traditions tell us that when money would arrive in the hands of the Prophet, he would immediately distribute it to everyone else. He wouldn't put it aside and decide, okay, this is how much I need for groceries, this is how, my, how much I need for this, for that, for this bill, for that bill, and then let me see what extra I have and then I'll distribute this extra. No, immediately he puts the concerns of others before himself. Fatima Zahra alayhi salam on the eve of her wedding. A story that you've all heard. On the eve of her wedding, a poor lady comes to her. She knocks on the door. Fatima Zahra opens the door. The lady tells her, I'm in need. I don't have sufficient clothing. I don't have anything sufficient to cover myself. 
And I come to you, the household of kindness and generosity. Without hesitating, Fatima goes inside and she takes her wedding dress, the wedding dress itself, and she hands it to the women. How many of us would be willing to do that? If anything, I'll go and I'll find something that I bought 25 years ago, I've had in my closet for three decades, and I don't want any more, and I'll go and give, if anything, if anything. But this is the Ahlul Bayt. They put the needs of others before even their own needs. This is what it means to express genuine generosity, genuine kindness. The Quran says, لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرَّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّونَ you will never achieve righteousness until you are ready to give from that which you love. Not just give anything. It's easy to give something that you don't want, that you have no care for, you have no concern for. The Quran says real generosity is when you give from that which you love, that which you want for yourself. That's what it means to be altruistic. That's what it means to put the needs of others before your own needs. So we have to ask ourselves, how responsive are we? How responsive are we? Before the emergence of NGOs and UN charters and development foundations and relief funds and all of these nonprofit organizations, the Quran centuries ago, it gave us an important obligation and an important principle. God said, وَفِي أَمْوَالِهِمْ حَقٌّ لِلسَّائِلِ وَالْمَحْرُومِ And in your wealth, a portion of this does not belong to you. It is a right. Haq is what? We talk about human rights. We talk about all types of rights. God says in your wealth, a portion of this is a right for others. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. Part of it belongs to others. Those who are deprived, those who are in need. So be alert, be aware that you have a responsibility towards others. It's not just about me taking care of myself and my family and that's it. You should take care of others. Express care and compassion. Be mindful of the needs of others. But one of the beauties of our tradition is that we are not expected to give everything. Amir al-Mu'mineen, he reminds us. He says that in my life, what is sufficient for me is modest clothing and modest food. I don't need anything else. وَإِنَّكُمْ لَا تَقْدِرُونَ عَلَىٰ ذَلِكَ And I know that most of you, my followers, will not be able to live the same lifestyle. Can we live the same lifestyle as Amir al-Mu'mineen? Can we be content with one or two outfits only? Can we be content with dry bread for food only? We can't. Amir al-Mu'mini says, that's okay, I know. I know that this is difficult. It's not for everyone. We're not expected to give everything that we have. We have responsibilities. We're expected to take care of ourselves and our families. That's all well and fine. But we are expected to help, to assist in the capacity that we can. 
according to our needs. One of the beautiful parts of our tradition is that it never belittles what we call the small. There are some things that we consider to be insignificant. If you're to open the newspaper, the headlines, you'll find headlines focusing on the big, right? A business person has decided to donate 20 million, 100 million, half of their wealth. That will make headlines. But you're not going to see a story about someone who donated five or ten dollars. Not going to see that, right? We focus on the big. For us, these things are insignificant. They're not worthy of the news or attention. But when it comes to our tradition, our tradition does not consider what we consider to be the small. It does not consider it to be insignificant. What we consider to be insignificant in the eyes of God is great. The smallest thing that we consider in the eyes of God has the greatest impact. And this is why we have to remember that we shouldn't always focus on the big. Never miss an opportunity. Never ignore an opportunity to help others, even if it's very small. Because in the eyes of God, nothing is small. If it's done with the right intentions, nothing is small. Everything is grand in the eyes of God. I read a story once about a Muslim king who decided that he wanted to build a grand mosque in his capital, in his city. And so he pronounced, he announced to his entire society, he said, I've decided to build a grand mosque and I will take care of everything, all of the funding, all of the money. I will take care of it all from A to Z. And I do not expect any of you, I prohibit you from contributing even the smallest amount. This whole project is my project. Okay. And so he began. He began constructing this large mosque. The construction went on for some time. After a while, they raised a huge placard on the entrance of the construction site. And it said on that placard that this mosque is being constructed and funded by His Royal Highness so-and-so, his name. We've seen many examples of this. And so the story tells us that the king one night he went to sleep. And he saw in his dream that an angel descended. He went to this plaque and he erased the name of a king, the king and he wrote the name of a woman on that plaque. King woke up, doesn't know what's going on. Second night, he went to sleep again for a second time. He saw the dream. The angel descends. He erases the name of the king, and he writes the name of a woman. He's surprised. The third night, for a third time, he sees the same dream. When he wakes up, he turns to his advisors. And he tells his advisors, he says, for the past three nights, I've been seeing this recurring dream. An angel descends, erases my name, 
from the plaque of the mosque and writes the name of a woman. So find me this woman. I want to figure out what's going on. So they go out and they search for this woman and they have her name. They find an old poor woman sitting on the side of the road. They approach her and they tell her, are you so-and-so? She says, yes. They tell her that the king has summoned you. He wants to talk to you. She said, me? The king wants to talk to me? They said, yes. She said, okay. So she went. She went into the court of the king. The king asked her, he said, are you so-and-so? She said, yes. He told her, did you hear about the big project, the mosque project in the city? Do you know about it? She said, yes, I've seen it. He told her, did you hear my announcement that no one should contribute to this project? She said, yes, I heard. He asked her, have you contributed to the project? She laughed. She told him, me? Look at me. I'm a poor old woman. I have nothing to contribute to. What am I supposed to give? So the king was surprised. He thought for a moment. Then he asked her, he said, have you been around the property? She said, well, yeah, there was this one time I was passing by and I entered into the property. He said, tell me, what did you do? She said, I was passing by and I saw one of the animals that's used to move objects that it was tied to a pole with a rope and it looked very thirsty. And there was a bucket of water close by, but because the animal was tied to the rope, to the pole with a rope, it could not reach the bucket of water to drink. So I went, I carried the bucket, and I put it close to the animal, and the animal was able to drink. The king nodded his head. He said, now it makes all sense. Now it makes sense. Now I understand what's going on. He told her, because of this act of yours, I will command my advisors to go to remove my name from the mosque and to write your name. She said, why? Why would you do that? He said, because when I intended to build that project, I intended it for fame. So people will see me and they will say, God bless the king. What a beautiful project the king has done. But when you perform this act, you perform this act out of kindness and generosity and concern. So you are more deserving of credit than me. Sometimes it could be a very small act. But if it's done with good intentions, with right intentions, with sincerity, with concern for others, then in the eyes of God, that act becomes magnificent. It becomes enormous. Sometimes it just requires that we spend a little bit of time, a small contribution, a few dollars to those who are in need or to projects, just a few dollars. Sometimes it's just about taking one minute of your time to listen to someone who's in need. Just one minute. Listen to them. Hear them out. They have a concern. Sometimes it's about giving one piece of advice to your friend, to your neighbor, to your children, to others, sincerely. Just one piece of advice. 
Small acts, we call them small. But in the eyes of God, if they're done with sincerity, then they are magnificent. Our teachings remind us never belittle any or ignore any opportunity to serve others, to express good, to express care and concern and kindness to others around you. When the Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, in the famous sermon, when the month of Ramadan was coming, the last days of Sha'ban, the Prophet, he turned to his community. He stood up and he gave a sermon. And he introduced to them the month of Ramadan and the benefits of the month of Ramadan and all of the opportunities for rewards of the month of Ramadan. And then at one point, he begins to give them details. At one point, he tells them the following. He says, express care and kindness to others, even if it means giving them, offering them a part of a date, a portion of a date, not a full date, someone who at the time of breaking the fast out of an act of kindness and generosity you offer them a part of a date it's an act of generosity the rewards of this are great he says that the rewards of this is that God does what? that God saves you from punishment in the hereafter with half a date? yes with half a date because the act, it's not the amount that you're giving. It is the fact that you are turning to others. You are being kind to others. You're not just thinking about yourself. You're concerned for the safety and well-being of others. And then he continues. And he talks about the rewards of offering water to the one who is fasting at the time of breaking the fast. It says, Not by offering a full cup, a full bottle of water to someone who is thirsty and they want to break their fast, but even if you give them a sip of water, that sip of water in the eyes of Allah becomes magnificent. Why? Because we all know when you've been fasting all day in the month of Ramadan and you're hungry and you're thirsty and it becomes the time of iftar and you take that first sip of water, you feel the water go down, you feel how it relieves you after a day of fasting. If this is the case with water, a sip of water after a few hours of fasting, what would a sip of water do if you have not had water for three days? What would that water do? Tonight we commemorate a man who gave his life in order to secure water for the thirsty children in the camp of Imam Hussein. 
يا عباس يا ابا الفضل after the companions of aba abdullah had been killed one by one the family of aba abdullah one by one his sons and his nephews and his brothers they had been all slaughtered one by one abul fadl al abbas alayhi salam he stands up and he approaches aba abdullah al husain he tells him my master abi abdullah my master i seek permission from you to go out onto the battlefield i want to go out and fight for your sake just like the rest of the companions and the family members did imam hussein he looks at his brother abbas and he breaks down in tears he tells him my beloved abbas if you go then who will remain to support me who will remain to protect the women and the children if you're gone that's it there will be no longer any support my dear abbas stay with me stay here to protect the women and the children abul fadl he insists he tells him my master i have no patience anymore I have no patience to see these enemies. I have to go out and I have to fight for your sake. I have to defend you and I have to defend the message of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. Imam Hussein alayhi salam when he sees Abul Fadl al-Abbas insisting, he tells him, my dear brother, reluctantly, I will give you permission to go. But before you go, I have one favor to ask of you. He tells him, yes, my master, ask anything. I'm at your service. He tells him, you heard the cries of the children. You heard them cry that they are thirsty. They have not had any water for several days. My dear Abbas, before you go out go to the go to the river bank and secure some water bring this water back to the camp so that we can quench the thirst of the women and the children abul fadl al-abbas alayhi salam this is the son of amirul mu'mineen huh this is the son of ali ibn abi talib valiantly he mounts his horse and he breaks through the enemy lines it is as though amirul mu'mineen himself is charging the enemies he breaks the enemy lines he arrives to the river bank he dismounts his horse he goes towards the river he places his hand in the water he feels the coolness of the water he he gathers the water at that moment he suddenly remembers the thirst of his brother Abba Abdullah al Hussein. he remembers the thirst of the women and the children he remembers the promise that he made to Ruqayya so he throws the water out and he says by Allah I will not take even a sip of water Abbas was thirsty also for three days he also did not have water he leaves the water he fills the water container then he mounts back onto his horse and he gallops valiantly back to the camp of Imam Hussein Umar ibn Sa'ad he sees al-Abbas 
what is this? This is a tragedy for him. If Abbas arrives back to the camp and he quenches Imam Hussein, that's it. They're done. There can no longer be any fighting. They will have regained their strength. So he commands his army, his soldiers to surround Abu al-Fadl. He tells them, make sure that he does not go back to the camp. The army, they surround him, but they are cowards. They're not ready to face him one by one. Again, this is the son of Amir al-Mu'mineen. None of them are ready to face him. So they begin to shower him with arrows from every direction. Allahu Akbar. What they, he continues to fight. The tradition tells us that these cowards, they began to hide behind places. Again, they could not face Abbas. So as Abbas is approaching the camp, one of the enemies who is hiding, he turns out and he strikes the right hand of Abbas, cutting it off. Abbas at this moment, he takes the water container in his left hand. He proceeds to go out. Another enemy comes and strikes his left hand, cutting it off. Abbas at this moment takes the water container. He places it in his mouth between his teeth. He is determined to go back to the camp. As he is approaching, they begin to shower him with arrows. An arrow comes and it pierces through the water container and it strikes Abbas's chest. Another one strikes his eye. He falls over onto his horse. One of the enemies comes and strikes him with a lance on his head. And Abbas falls to the ground. Allahu Akbar. At this moment, Abbas is on the ground. He is bloodied. He is without his right hand and without his left hand. At this moment, while Abbas is in this situation, you can imagine, huh? It's as though Abbas's life begins to flash between his eyes. He remembers when he was a child. He remembers his devotion to his beloved brother Hussein. He remembers following Hussein around everywhere. He remembers that when Hussein is thirsty in the mosque of Kufa, he would get up, he would run and bring him water in order to quench him. He remembers that as he's doing so, one day he spills the water on his clothes. His father, Amir al-Mu'mineen, he sees him and he begins to weep. He remembers 20 years earlier when his father Amir al-Mu'mineen was on his deathbed and he was surrounded by his family and his children and he looked to one after another at that point. Abbas remembered that he was standing in the corner crying, crying at the sight of his father Amir al-Mu'mineen. He remembers at that point when Amir al-Mu'mineen told him, my beloved Abbas, come forward. Come to me, my beloved. He embraced him. He held him close. He told him, my beloved Abbas, do not overlook any opportunity to serve your brother Hussein. Be there with him in every opportunity and every chance that you have. And then he remembered when his father called Zainab forward. He brought her forth. He told her, my dear Zainab, come forth. He embraced her. Then he took the hand of Zainab and he took the hand of Abbas and he placed the hand of Zainab in the hand of Abbas. He told him, my beloved Abbas, never let go of your sister's hand. Ya Amir al-Mu'mini, 
I was Abbas supposed to hold the hand of Zainab when he no longer has his hand. At that moment, he remembers departing from his beloved and elderly mother from Medina, Ummul Banin, bidding farewell to her. He remembers these moments. And then suddenly he remembers his brother Abi Abdullah. He remembers the cries of the children calling out, We are thirsty! We are thirsty! He remembers the promise that he made to Ruqayya to bring water for her. At that point, in that distressful situation, he gathers up all of the strength that he has and he calls out. He says, My beloved brother, Akhi Aba Abdullah, Adrik Akhak. Oftentimes, when Abbas would call his brother, he would always tell him, Sayyidi wa Mawlai my master, my beloved. But at this point, during this time, he calls out and he says, my brother Hussein, come to the rescue of your brother. Imam Hussein, from far away, when he sent Abbas, how did he know where Abbas was? He would look at the banner, at the flag, because Abbas was carrying the flag. When it went left, he would know that Abbas was going in that direction. When it went right, he knows that Abbas is going that direction. At that moment, he suddenly saw the flag fall to the ground. He came rushing out. He came galloping forward fiercely. The enemies, they had no strength and power to turn around Imam Hussein. Imam Hussein comes. Suddenly he approaches close by. He sees first the two hands of Abbas on the ground. Then he sees the empty water container with the arrow in it. Then he turns around and he sees the body of his brother Abul Fazl. He runs down towards him. He looks at him. He tells him, my brother, your situation now has broken my back. Akhi al-an qad inkasara dhahri wa qallat hilati. He sat down, he placed the head of Abbas in his lap. He began to remove the blood and the sand off his face. He told him, my brother Abul Fadl, let me assist you. Let me help you up and take you back to the camp. Abbas looked at him, he told him, no, my brother, leave me here. He told him why. He said, because I made a promise to Ruqayya and the children that I would bring water for them and now I am empty-handed. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon wa sayalamu alladheena zalamu ayya munqalabin yanqalibun wal aqibatu lilmuttaqeen صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله صلى الله وسلم عليك وعلى الأرواح التي حلت بفنائك عليكم مني جميعا سلام الله أبدا ما بقيت وبقي الليل والنهار ولا جعله الله آخر العهد مني لزيارتكم altogether السلام على الحسين 
وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته وإلى أرواح المؤمنين والمؤمنات نهدي جميعا ثواب سورة الفاتحة مع الصلوات